Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We are glad you are with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. I'm Greg Corumbus. Jim Garrity's on vacation. Rob Long, contributing editor at National Review Online, is here. He's also the co-founder of Ricochet and the co-host of the Glob Podcast, and I believe the Ricochet Podcast. We are brought to you today by Aslo. That's the bank you always wish you had. It's spelled A-Z-L-O dot com slash martini. Much more on them a little bit later in the podcast. All right, let's talk about our good martini. We've got good, bad, and crazy today. And Rob, it takes a little bit of digging here uh, in terms of getting through the scientific jargon, but it looks like we have (laughs) reason to be hopeful that we'll have a coronavirus vaccine here. It's not a done deal, but it's moving along. And this is uh, from The Lancet. We are looking at a vaccine that's called the CHADOX1 NCOV19 vaccine against SARS-CoV2. So, you know, it's all all very good. But anyway, I'm putting a marker down. It's going to be called, if it works, it'll be known as the CHADOX, C-H-A-D-O-X-1. CHADOX1. Yes, that's the that's what's going to save us all. That's a better way to put it. CHADOX1. This is their interpretation. And again, this is scientific uh, wording here, but uh, I think it's good news. CHADOX1 showed an acceptable safety profile and homologous boosting increased antibody responses. These results, together with the induction of both humoral and cellular immune responses, support large-scale evaluation of this candidate vaccine in an ongoing Phase 3 program. And program is spelled uh, with uh, two M's and an E at the end, so you know yeah. they're British. But, uh, Rob, Operation Warp Speed is the, uh, is the, uh, is the, is the goal here, <laughs> yeah. which is, of course, what you always want <laughs> with your vaccine development uh, is, is speed above all else. But obviously they're doing safety checks and effectiveness checks as well. And, you know, this, this takes at least a year, if not longer, to, to do. In many cases, it takes many years. So the fact that they're moving the ball forward is good news. Yeah, I mean, I think this is sort of modified good news. I mean, a couple of things are going to happen now. Totally unqualified people are going to read this thing in The Lancet, like you and me, and then we're going to spend the next 48 hours talking about, like, well, you know, from my understanding, and then we'll be using terms and phrases that we just really only learned 10 seconds ago and don't really understand. <laughs> and then at probably 72 hours from now, there'll be somebody come out with an article that will actually, if you read it, it isn't going to be effective, and here's why. So we have limited good news to cling to, but I actually feel like, we, we focus all the time on all the systemic failures, but the systemic the failures seem to be me to be for COVID seem to be the, the failures of people we knew were feckless losers anyway, which are elected politicians. <laughs> and the successes are the people who actually know how to do things like people who go to labs and they put on the coats and then they look at them, put on the glasses and they go and look at a test tube like you see in, um, you know, stock photos. Those are the people who are going to going to save us. And they seem to be moving pretty quickly. And they seem to be adjusting their workflow, and even the FDA seems to be adjusting its normal sclerotic, go slow, terrified posture to be a little bit more aggressive. You know, look, it's Monday morning. I think we should we should at least spend part of the day looking at the bright side, and there is a bright side. So that's my pitch for a good martini. Exactly, and we learned last week that the Russians were trying to hack. Uh... COVID research, COVID vaccine research. And so the fact that they were even trying to do that suggests they either thought 
uh, that uh, folks in the West were making progress on that, or maybe they're just hacking right. them all the time, and we just caught them this time. But uh, <laughs> they it, hack everything, so they're gonna have it. Oh, but, but look, that's that's a good that, look. That's that's how they almost got the space program. That's that was their strategy to combat Reagan's um, strategic defense initiative was to like, well, we can't build one our own of our own, obviously, so we're gonna have to steal it. So. You know, nobody nobody breaks into a, a bank because the money's not there. Put it that way. Exactly. And man, that's a really good transition because uh, banking is where we're going with our sponsor today. It's Aslo. And Rob, you know, everybody's adapted as much as they can, or at least hopefully they have, to what's gone on with this pandemic. You've got researchers obviously putting other priorities aside and focusing on a vaccine. Businesses are trying to do what they can to comply with the CDC guidelines and, and give customers an assurance that they're safe. And everybody's trying to do what they can to get somewhere close to normal. So why aren't banks doing that? And that's where Aslo comes in. Because look, with regular banks, unnecessary fees or taking a trip to your bank is the last thing that business owners need to be thinking about. Aslo takes all the friction out of business banking and instead of insisting you handle your banking as if the internet never existed and following all of their rules, Aslo has set this up so that it's banking done how you'd want it done. Aslo is a free business checking account with invoicing, bill pay, money transfers, no minimum balance, no fees. Unlike other banking options, there's no minimum deposit required. You'll never be charged maintenance or overdraft fees and no ridiculous phone system that feels designed to waste your time. Press one if you, you know about Instead of the days or weeks it takes to apply for an account at a traditional bank where you're still required to go in person, with Aslo, you just go to azlo.com, Aslo, azlo.com, and apply in as little as 10 minutes, and there's no waiting to use your account. With Aslo's free instant funding feature, you can deposit up to $1,000 and access it in your account instantly. Aslo is owned by BBVA USA. It's a member of FDIC, and because they make business banking easy, and offer a fee-free checking account, Money Magazine calls them the best business banking option for freelancers and entrepreneurs. So instead of having to jump through all the hoops, access your deposit hours or days later, Aslo is the bank that you've been waiting for, really. Deposit your money, and wow, you actually have access to it as soon as you deposit it. So sign up right now with no minimum deposit. We can't stress that enough. None of those gimmicks from that we see from the usual banks either. So no minimum deposit. Sign up at aslo.com slash martini and get a free copy of Aslo's Small Business Starter Guide, spelled A-Z-L-O dot com slash martini, and sign up with a free Small Business Starter Guide and no minimum deposit. Aslo.com slash martini. All right, Rob, we had our good news. Let's get to our really bad news now. And of course, the debate is raging across the country. Should schools open? Should they open all the way? Should it be part-time? Should it be full-time? Should it be all distance learning? And if you had kids in school during the spring, you know what distance learning means. Not much. Uh, so a lot of schools are trying to make those decisions now. And at least here in the D.C. area, most of them are either starting with all distance learning or some sort of hybrid that has kids in school maybe a day or two a week. But none of the schools around here have the chutzpah of the L.A. Teachers Union, a major union 
in Los Angeles. Uh, this is according to uh, the Daily Caller, but they've got the material straight from the United Teachers of Los Angeles, who are not just uh, talking about, oh, I don't know, I think our lives could be in danger here, our health could be in danger. I'm not sure it's time to reopen the schools yet. No, 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 no. We have to have the whole left-wing agenda done, Rob, before we can go back to school. That includes defunding of police, a moratorium on new charter schools, new wealth taxes on California's millionaires and billionaires, and the Fed, at the federal level, Congress has to approve Medicare for all. So that's clearly not going to happen anytime this year. So why don't they just say we don't want to teach this year? <laughs> well, that's implied. That's, that's implied every year, I think. Um, I, what I love about this is that I, I don't even think it's like a brazen power grab. I believe this is the bedrock belief of the of this of the LA Teachers Union. This is this isn't something that you could even convince them. Oh, come on! Um, they really do believe that all these things need to be necessary in order to create an environment for teaching, because otherwise they have nothing else to fall back on except their terrible record. Well, what I love about this is that the defunding the police suggests that the <laughs> The L.A. Unified Teachers Union believes that the only way to reform another uh, public sector union is by defunding it. The, the, the things that stand in the way of all sorts of police reform are, are uh, policemen's unions, are the unions that control the, the, those, those public sector unions. It's hilarious to me. The cops should refuse to, uh, to uh, answer any teacher's calls until they, de until they accept charter schools or, uh, or, or school vouchers, because that's really the only kind of reform that would ever change the public schools. So we have this moment where, uh, because there's this vacuum at the top, because there's really a vacuum on the right and even on the center, there's this crazy spinning out of control of the far left. Um, that's kind of fun to watch. I mean, you could have put this in the good martini uh, <laughs> file, maybe, because it, it is so revealing of their inability to read the room. You know, I was talking to a liberal friend of mine who was complaining that Joe Biden's just sitting in his basement. He should be out there talking. I'm like, look, look, look at his poll numbers. He's they're soaring. Sitting in his basement is exactly the right strategy. But there are some people who simply can't allow themselves to win. They simply must uh, go too far, and that is this is the, this is the, exactly the kind of um, you know crackpot left wing agitation that reminds you if you've forgotten that the left just simply has an inability to read the room. So, do you think uh, the kids are ever going back to school there? Um, well, if, if they want an education, they probably should stay home. I mean, look, <laughs> there aren't many school districts worse than LA Unified. As a thirty year past thirty year resident of LA, I can tell you that. And the amount of money that was squandered in LA Unified on crazy things like new, brand new school buildings that turned out to be unfit to use. So there's a billion dollar empty school building in downtown Los Angeles. Um, I'm not even exaggerating, a billion dollars that no one can go into because it's some, for some reason was, was unfit to inhabit. Look, I suspect that what will happen is that the parents will come up with a workaround and that workaround will, I mean, if you are in favor of school reform, you should be hoping that the these teachers unions prevail because it will force parents to come up with other alternative ways of educating their children. And um, that could only result in an improvement. What I suspect is at the end that there'll be some compromise and they'll go back to school because the only way these schools districts work and these uh, public school systems work is if they have an enforced monopoly. The minute they give up their position and they encourage people to look at the alternatives, 
they lose. Yeah, the moratorium on new charter schools has really given away the game, isn't it? <laughs> it's just like we don't, we know we can't deal with competition, so we're just going to insist that there isn't any. Tom Sowell's book about the uh, Success Academy in Harlem, uh, the, uh, or the chain of Success Academies in New York, is really eye-opening. Um, charter schools are the path out of the current trouble we're in. And if the teachers unions want to push us inadvertently in that direction, hey, let's not get in their way. All right, Rob, let's move to our crazy martini now. And I'm not even sure this one truly qualifies as crazy. I mean, it is crazy to see someone from a different party speaking at the opposing party's convention. But if it was going to happen, you kind of knew it was going to be this guy. Uh, This is the Associated Press. Former Ohio Governor John Kasich, a Republican and frequent Trump critic, has been approached and is expected to speak at the Democratic National Convention on Joe Biden's behalf next month, according to a person with direct knowledge of the plans who insisted on anonymity to discuss strategy. Kasich is among a handful of high-profile Republicans likely to become more active in supporting Biden in the fall. So, of course, this is uh, John Kasich, who won exactly one primary in 2016 and insisted on staying in the race despite lagging badly in every, just about every other state uh, and, and making sure that it was always a three-man race. There was always a second alternative to Donald Trump uh, throughout the Republican <laughs> primary. So what do you make of him uh, appearing at the convention? I assume that there's going to be more, could be uh, disgruntled former cabinet members. I can imagine maybe a Rex Tillerson or a Jim Mattis. I don't know. What do you expect uh, from Kasich and what do you expect from disgruntled Republicans at this convention? Well, I think it was a dumb move for the Democrats to announce that because the, the fact that Kasich is there is going to keep all of the, uh, you know, respectable Republicans out, you know, <laughs> like the fact that Kasich's there is going to be like, well, I don't want to be one. I don't want to be up there with Kasich. I don't want to be one of those guys because, you know, Kasich's going to love this. He's going to love the adoration of the crowd. Um, God, who knows what he's going to say about what what uh, what other perfectly legitimate, decent uh, center right policies he had as governor which ones he's going to repudiate. Um, so who knows? But it does seem to me that it is a classic problem of a candidate where they just don't get enough love. It's like he thought that he would be loved more as the uh, you know canary in the coal mine, as the one lone voice who stood up against the Trump, uh, Trump train, and he just didn't get any love at all. And in the past four years, he's gotten any love. And now he's got to go to the one place where he knows he's going to be cheered and that is the, uh, the well, I guess virtually cheered because it's going to be a pretty tiny convention. Yes. Um, but even that seems like it, it seems it's sort of like, you know, OK, listen, if you need to do this, go right ahead and do it. It's going to change not one vote. It will change not one person's mind. It will do only one thing. And that's sort of brand Kasich as the conscience of the party. But it's too late. Uh, it's highly likely that that right now, if you look at the polls, that, that Trump's going to lose in November. Um, all the brave, if you're going to make a brave stand against Trump, you should have started a year ago. I'm almost surprised. He, well, he, he was toying with the primary challenge and then yeah. decided against it, right? Because, uh, you know, the, the last one went so well. But He why? wouldn't have done any worse, <laughs> you know? It's like, if, if, if that's who you want to be, go right ahead and do it. But don't. But I think what he did was the most efficient choice, which is where am I going to get where? Where's the least? I mean, he might not even have to travel there to get the ego boost. Like it may just be zoom him in, uh, in which case, uh, yeah, it's like it's as little effort as you can get to have your uh, your your uh, your chip in the game of uh, who's going to help rebuild the party after Trump. 
I mean, it's always a turnout election, but this is almost entirely a turnout election, right? I mean, how many people out there are, have still not made up their mind about what they think about President Trump? Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of people who are going to wait, taking a wait-and-see attitude. I think the problem for the Trump people is that uh, – the problem for people in general and politicians in general is that they forget that their playbook is a universally applicable playbook. The other team can use it too. So one of the things that all the smarty people who were uh, on the Trump train in 2016 would say, I think it's Peter Thiel who came up with this first, is that the thing that you don't understand, you elites don't understand about the Trump voter is that they take him seriously, but not literally. Because we'd say, well, all these crazy things that Trump's saying, how could you vote for this guy? And what they forget is that that is equally applicable in 2020, that there are a whole bunch of crazy crackpot lefty ideas floating around there. And I think there are a whole lot of voters in the center who will take those ideas seriously, meaning doing something about police brutality, doing something about uh, racism in the country, but not literally. And once you've analyzed voters as being able to do that, they can do that for the other side too. And so I suspect there are a whole lot of people who are against, ostensibly against the left-wing agenda, but who will nonetheless vote for the Democratic candidate. And the people on the right, the Republicans, the Trump loyalists, will be tearing their hair out saying, how could you vote for this guy? Didn't you hear what he just said? And that irony will be completely lost on them. That um, we are now in a, a zone where it is you can perfectly happily vote for a candidate who says things you totally disagree with because you take him seriously and not literally. Well, it's like the media with defund police. I mean, they're literally putting it on posters and chanting it in the streets, but ah, they don't really mean that. Come on. Center suburban voters who traditionally would vote Republican or be horrified by the idea of not having the police can easily vote for Joe Biden because they take him seriously. He will seriously address the bad issues that led to all this unrest, but not literally. He's not literally going to defund the police. Now, he may end up doing exactly that, but it is the same process by which people who don't think that Trump is saying everything literally voted for him. And I mean, it's just the shoes on the other foot now. Many of our listeners know that uh, periodically we do a, a champagne toast uh, to a political figure, usually, uh, who has recently passed away. And we learned just a couple of days ago about the passing of longtime Georgia Congressman John Lewis, who, of course, was a critical figure in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Uh, I've seen some folks online from a conservative perspective uh, grousing about Lewis's congressional record. And it's probably true that you and I would not agree with many of his votes Regardless of what you think of his congressional record, uh, what he did as a civil rights activist in the 1960s is worthy of honoring and worthy of remembering. Uh, as a young student, he quickly became active. He was one of the Freedom Riders. Uh, he was a critical organizer for the 1963 March on Washington. And of course, uh, what he's probably most famous for is barely surviving a uh, major beating uh, on the bridge in Selma while he was advocating for voting rights in 1965, which became known as Bloody Selma. And so uh, John Lewis's courage then uh, on so many different stages uh, in the quest for equality in this country uh, is worthy of remembrance and worthy of honor, regardless of what you think of his subsequent political career. I could agree with you more. I mean, the, the most amazing thing to me about all this stuff is that um just a sign of getting older, when an older people die, I think he was 80 when he died. You just imagine his life, for me, because I'm older now, but I, I still think like a young person, so I think when old people die, boy, he must have been born in the right after the Civil War, or like right before World War One, or some distant number. He was born in 1940. Yeah. Um, which isn't, you know, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying it was yesterday, but 1940 is, uh, 
you know, kind of mo almost modern times. But uh, the Freedom Riders, that, that took place in 61. He was 21 then. He was 25 in Selma. Uh, these are young men. And we forget Martin Luther King Jr. was also a very young man. So just imagine these young men and the courage they had at in their early 20s uh, to do what they did. Um, it's pretty amazing. It's a pretty extraordinary thing that uh, a modern, um, I mean, too young for war. He was too young for the Korean War. That's how young he was. But yet in the 60s, they did an amazing thing. And look, I mean, Republicans and conservatives can grouse and grouse and grouse. But look, he took over a Democratic district that was pretty solid. Andrew Young's district, I think. So it wasn't like this guy uh, wasn't part of a, a district that was going to vote in a liberal and a liberal Democrat. But at least he was a liberal Democrat who had a history of true bravery and true accomplishment. He was not, by any definition, simply a... Uh, born and bred politician he was a born and bred fighter and you got to give the guy credit that's a pretty amazing thing to be doing at the age that uh currently um <laughs> young americans are uh you know whining and complaining about their internship or something yeah compare the conduct of of him at that time compared to the conduct of the <laughs> yeah. demonstrators now it's a, it's a totally different world totally different world rob great to have you with us today we'll see you again later in the week thanks for your time today sure have a good day Rob Long is a contributing editor at National Review Online. He's the co-founder of Ricochet, and he's co-host of the Glop Podcast and the Ricochet Podcast. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please remember our sponsor, Aslo, A-Z-L-O dot com slash martini. And please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. Leave us a kind review with five stars. Get us on those home devices by saying play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. And please join us on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.